Welcome to the New Books Network. On May 30th, 1967, Sir Louis Banefo brought a new country into the world. Banefo was a widely respected judge, known to the Nigerian public as the Chief Justice of the Eastern Region. To his peers in the judiciary, he was a formidable moralist, a black Englishman who did not mix well at parties, as one would recall. A Cambridge education, a successful law practice, a knighthood, and a term on the International Court of Justice were all behind him. Ahead of him was an uncertain future. A photo taken that day shows Manefo, weighed down under his robes and wig, taking an oath from a man 30 years his junior, clad in military fatigues and an unruly beard. The country established that day, through a series of decrees and rituals, was the Republic of Biafra. And the soldier being sworn in to lead it was Lieutenant Colonel Odumegu Ojukwu. Welcome to New Books in African Studies. I'm your host, Marina Chiam, and today I'm going to be talking with Samuel Fury Charles Daly, an assistant professor of African and African American Studies at Duke University. Um, his book just came out in August this year, 2020, with Cambridge University Press. It is called A History of the Republic of Biafra, Law, Crime, and the Nigerian Civil War. And I'm very, very excited to be discussing it today. Welcome to the podcast, Sam. Thank you so much for having me, Medina. Yeah, of course. Of course. So to start, I guess, can you just introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us a little bit more about your background, about your training, and also what was the genesis of this particular project? Sure. So as you mentioned, uh, I'm currently an assistant professor of African and African-American studies at Duke University in North Carolina. And uh, I came to the study of Africa in college, uh, specifically through language study. Um, I was uh, the beneficiary of the programs that the American government established uh, during the Cold War to study foreign languages and cultures for, you know, frankly, suspicious reasons of national security. Um, but, you know, those, those programs also dovetailed with more radical prerogatives, uh, including those of black studies in the late 1960s that valorized the study of African languages out of an interest in African epistemology, which is a very different impulse than, you know, wanting to do so for security reasons. Mm-hmm. And those programs have lived on into the present. And when I was in college, I kind of stumbled into them mostly by accident. And I'm talking about things like the Fulbright Hayes Language Study Program or the, the FLAS uh, fellowships in the United States. Um, these are programs that encourage students to study other places in ways that can be kind of dilettantish, to be honest. Um, but for some, that study you know, continues beyond university, and, and I was one of those people. So this may sound sort of like navel-gazing or solipsistic, but you know, since the Africanist Academy is now thinking more about who studies Africa and why, I think it's maybe worth dwelling on how various people come to African studies, and, and that's the story of, of how I reached this field. Um, once I you know, realized that African studies was something I wanted to pursue, um, I began to, to ask a larger set of questions. Uh, thematic questions um, that were mostly oriented around um, what warfare does to law, uh, how it degrades normative orders, and how it affects, or I would actually probably say poisons, the ways that people relate to one another. 
these definitely aren't questions that are particular to the study of Africa at all. And at the end of the day, I think that this book that we're talking about um, actually says more about warfare as a general condition than it says about this particular war. So as a historian and a reader, I am often attracted to, to questions that I don't understand intuitively. So why people go to war is one of them, and how lawyers and judges think is another. And I am equally a historian of law and a historian of warfare. And if there's one current that runs through all my work, including this book, it's the question of why people suspend the norms that structure how they live when armed conflict comes around, which happens in virtually every mm-hmm. war. The offer is not unique in that respect. I'm especially committed to telling about war from the perspective of civilians and rank and file soldiers. Because for those people, the story of war is not something that is found in tactical decisions and strategies or in the biographies of generals. Uh, to them, you know, war is a force that comes down on you. It's a storm that you get caught up in. And a lot of the people that I interviewed for this project use the language of floods and waves to describe how being in warfare felt, as if it was a natural phenomenon that they were caught up in rather than the result of human decision-making. And in this book, I really wanted to honor that experience of warfare as not just politics by other means, um, as Clausewitz famously called it, but rather something that is greater than the sum of its parts. It's not just a bunch of small tactical decisions that you add together and that's a war. It's something that is almost metaphysical. And that way of seeing warfare as a force that changes everything within its shatter zone is the one that I think allows us to see how warfare changes our ways of being and relating to each other. Um, The heat of battle melts away all kinds of things. It changes the ways that we measure risk. It changes the ways we think. And we come to accept as normal practices that we would usually abhor. So this is the side of warfare that I am interested in, how it can colonize our consciousness, and how in some cases the degradation that warfare creates can actually last long after the shooting war comes to an end. So for that reason, in my work generally, and in this book in particular, there's not a lot of talk about battles and tactics and the decisions that the officers make. It is a military history in that, it's, in that it is um, fundamentally about what soldiers do, but it's not only that and not really primarily that. So right. to drill... Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, no, go ahead, please. To, to, to kind of drill down to the next level and talk about why this project is about Biafra, um, it's mostly because of sources and documents. So when I started in graduate school, I had a vague idea that I wanted to write about Biafra. Uh, I had been to Nigeria a few times, and I had read Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's uh, Half of the Yellow Sun, um, which is a really excellent novel about the Nigerian Civil War. But it really vexed me as a book about history. So it was clear to me that this was an important episode. Uh, Just the scale of Biafra alone makes that immediately apparent. Um, Somewhere between one and three million people died in Biafra. So even setting everything else aside, the human cost of the war is enormous. And I think any study of the Nigerian Civil War needs to kind of start from that fact. But I had no idea how to actually write about Biafra. Uh, Nearly All Biafran documents uh, in Nigeria are inaccessible because uh, most of them were destroyed after the war in the name of national reconciliation and moving on. 
there's a lot of propaganda and a lot of foreign intelligence documents that one could use, and other historians have to great effect. But that didn't really open up the social historical angle that I wanted to capture. And it also didn't sit well with me to write about this critical episode in Nigerian history from sources that are basically the papers of British and American spies. But Mm -hmm. what was available in Nigeria were these legal records from Biafra. And these are the records of fairly ordinary court proceedings, uh, including criminal cases, but also civil matters like family law, property law. And as I started reading through these cases, um, it began to occur to me that not only did they illuminate um, the question of how people lived through war, which was my main question, but they also helped me to understand something that people were talking about all the time in Nigeria, and that was crime. So it was astonishing to me how many people assumed false identities during the war and how many acts of forgery and fraud took place in the war zone. It was less surprising to see um, how much violence there was and how violent life could be. Uh, It is a war after all. But the violence that I was reading about was not only the big violence of the military confrontation with Nigeria, but also a kind of smaller violence of people finding ways to survive in a time of famine and extreme danger. Mm -hmm. So in these everyday court cases, you can see very clearly how martial violence and violent crime bleed into one another. And so that those documents became the basis for this book. And (laughs) many years later, here we are. Here we are. And and the result is great. Um, And we're going to we're going to come back throughout the podcast to a lot of things that you touched on right now. Uh, uh, The type of history that you do, uh, the type of sources that you used. It's it's also rich. I first First, I guess, to sort of set the setting, um, especially for people who are not so familiar with this particular conflict, um, can you give us sort of an overview of the the Biafra War, the Nigerian Civil War? What what was this conflict? When did it happen? Why? Uh, What were some of the main people involved, et cetera? Just just kind of an overview um, to set the time period and the events that we're talking about. Sure. So the Nigerian Civil War, which is also known as the Nigeria-Biafra War, um, took place between 1967 and 1970. And uh, it is a war that was critical not only for Nigeria in this period, but for a lot of larger questions in international history. And for me, in terms of this relationship between warfare, violence, and crime. Um, But the war itself began with the secession of the eastern region of Nigeria. Um, which declared independence as the Republic of Biafra in May of 1967. So the East seceded in the name of protecting the lives and interests of Igbos, um, who are an ethnic group who called the Eastern region home. And this declaration came on the heels of a series of pogroms uh, against them in 1966 that took place predominantly in the northern region of Nigeria. So over the course of the 20th century, Igbos had come to constitute a kind of internal diaspora in Nigeria. Uh, They were what the historian Yuri Sleskin has called Mercurians. They were an entrepreneurial minority who had a sometimes acrimonious relationship with the, the majorities they lived amongst. And ultimately, it was this series of, of acts of genocidal violence in the north that drove the eastern region to secede. 
Um, as you can imagine, the Nigerian Federation was not willing to simply let the East go its separate way. And Nigeria staged what it initially called a police action to reclaim the region, which quickly escalated into a full-fledged civil war. So in the two and a half years that followed, um, Biafra was blockaded by Nigeria. It was heavily bombarded by Nigeria and its allies. And this combination of blockade and bombardment uh, created a humanitarian crisis there, which stunned the outside world and which Biafra called genocidal. So everyday life for Biafrans in this uh, situation was extremely precarious. Uh, starvation, bombardment, and also internal threats to liberty, things like press ganging into the Biafran army, were increasingly common features of life there. They made everyday life really difficult, and Biafra became a watchword for suffering. This situation continued until Biafra's surrender in January of 1970, uh, which is glossing over a lot of you know small, smaller military historical details. But mm-hmm. um, but when Biafra was defeated, you know the, the human cost of the war had become enormous. Biafra was reintegrated into Nigeria uh, through a contentious and very drawn out process of reconciliation which remains a source of a lot of bitterness and grievances to this day. And this year, 2020, is the 50th anniversary of the war's end. Um, And there is now a large literature on the war. Um, Most of it, though, is about the war's international dimensions. And the war, you know, does have important international uh, effects. It's a, a chapter in the history of humanitarianism Uh, the treatment of genocide, the Cold War. But in this book, I focus on a legacy that is internal to Nigeria uh, and which is often elided in these more extroverted approaches, and that is its connection to the practice of crime. So the book argues that the pressures of the war and the kinds of circumstances that were created by mass hunger and uh, the entropy of the Biafran state made this space for new and alarming forms of crime to flourish. Um, And the the crimes that especially took off um, were fraud and armed crime, which in many cases were also survival tactics. So fraud in particular was a way of dealing with risk. People cultivated uncertainty about themselves to ensure their survival, uh, to throw off the scent of their enemies, people who might be pursuing them, or to make sure that they couldn't be found if the authorities came looking for them. So the categories of crime that thrived in Biafra and that made up the bulk of the the, the, uh, legal records that I used for this project included forgery, armed robbery, and this category of fraudulent activities that are collectively known as 419 after the section of the Biafran and also Nigerian criminal codes that prohibited them. So you're probably familiar with 419 today, as a form of advanced fee fraud uh, that is predominantly conducted over email. But I argue that this form of fraud in which spurious Nigerian princes will offer to cut you in on some lucrative and too good to be true deal. Mm -hmm. um, Yes. Yes, you're familiar. I argue that that is, is actually genealogically connected to events that took place on the Biafran battlefield, even though today we, we associate it so strongly with the internet. It's not coincidental that these particular kinds of crime and misconduct, uh, which were so present in Biafra, became the scourge of Nigeria 
in the 1970s and beyond. Um, after the war, these forms of crime intensified. They spread beyond the borders of the former Republic of Biafra. And it was this suite of interrelated criminal activities that largely gave Nigeria the global reputation for fraud and violence that the country is still trying to shake off today. So the book basically tells the story of how this came to pass. Right. So, right. So you have you have law and the courts on the one hand, uh, and you have how crime develops on the other hand. We're going to come back to both aspects of of, of your analysis of the war here. Uh, but so let's start with the first one. You you open the book with the story of a judge. That's that's what I read at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, and you you make this choice to analyze the conflict from the standpoint of the courts. Uh, and of legal records, which which is a non-obvious choice, right? Because I, well, one, it's 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 you know it's a secessionist entity at war. It's a fairly short short-lived state, um, so I guess it's not obvious to immediately think that um, there would be so much legal record um, and that the courts produce so much uh, during that time period. And also, as you said yourself, uh, for the most part, the the conflict. Um, the way historians or scholars have analyzed this conflict, it was from other standpoints, right? From the standpoint of uh, human rights and humanitarianism, um, uh, the famine that took place, etc. Or on the other hand, from the standpoint of um, the international di- relations and uh, diplomatic relations and what was going on in the Cold War era and in post-colonial um, uh, African history that um, sort of shaped this conflict. And you you made the choice to focus instead on on this this legal history. So let's talk about this a little bit more. Like, what was the? Why did you make this choice? What was the role of the law and of the judiciary and of the courts in governing Biafra um, that was so appealing to you that that you put it at the center of, of the of your analysis? Mm-hmm. So I think I'll start with the question of of why law and then move on to why not international <laughs> history. Okay. Um, so, indeed, the, the, the fact that Biafra had courts at all may come as some surprise. The, the dominant image of this war is not a well-ordered courtroom, uh, not uh, men in robes and wigs like the image that appears on the cover of the book. It is the image of a starving child. Um, but Biafra very much did have courts. And in fact, it actually had little else besides them in terms of its governmentality. In fact, the law was extremely important in Biafra, and the legal system was at the center of its political and administrative culture, um, and also at the center of its national ethos, uh, of its sense of itself as a place, um, a place that had been born from a Nigeria that was lawless and anarchic, Uh, and had let the pogroms of 1966 happen. So law in these circumstances became more than just a mechanism for the resolution of disputes or the provision of justice in an abstract sense. It was also increasingly the only functional part of the Biafran state apparatus. And so in the final stages of the war, Biafra became a funny kind of state in that, in effect, it consisted of an army with a court system attached to it. And all other aspects of the Biafran state had basically fallen apart or ceased to exist. So towards the end of the war, trials were held in the shells of bombed out buildings or under the shade of trees. And legal proceedings were recorded by hand on pieces of scrap paper or in children's exercise books. 
And to read these very grim narratives about violence and crimes of survival and a society that is basically falling apart that are recorded in this way in you know children's notebooks or on the back of a love letter, as one criminal case was, is very affecting. And I think it's an illustration of how the materiality of a legal archive can say as, as much as the words that are actually recorded in it. So, you know, we'll talk about this later, but there's a there's an argument about method and the feel of the archive that is embedded in the book. Right. There's also a larger argument about the state and how it relates to law here. So even a place as skeletal and embattled as the Republic of Biafra had a legal order. Um, it also had internal factions. It had an administrative philosophy, a bureaucracy, a political culture. And all of these things are visible in the remains of its legal record. And if this chaotic place can have a meaningful, distinct form of law and an administrative structure, I think it stands to reason that other African nation states, including ones that are much more tangible and lasting, would have those things as well. And this book is a bid for the importance of studying the inner life of African states after independence, which surprisingly few people do. Um, African states and legal systems are not just a curse or an imposition or a colonial construct. They are, they are things that historians need to take seriously if we're going to understand the history of Africa after independence. You know, law in Africa especially um, is often presumed to be too weak or unruly or derivative to establish standards, to maintain order to define rights and duties, to do all the things that law does in most societies. Um, but the fact that law can have force, you know, even in Biafra, suggests that, uh, that, that law is important probably everywhere. So this book is a bid for the importance of, of legal procedure for social and political history in Africa, too. Um, I'll note one other thing, uh, which is that in their rulings, Biafran judges were not just trying to stave off disorder. They were also articulating some idea of who constituted the Biafran public and why Biafra deserved to exist apart from Nigeria. So there's a kind of ideological content to these legal cases that I think is very important. Judges didn't necessarily agree on what um, that content ought to be uh, or what uh, boundaries this new country that they were trying to instantiate should have. Um, but in all cases, that, that task was intimately tied up with questions of crime and criminal law, because defining Biafra and defining the Biafran subject was very often done by defining Biafra against a lawless and anarchic Nigeria. So judges did this in a number of different ways. They did it in how they delineated the boundaries of their own judicial authority, um, you can see it in how they treated matters of customary law, which were closely uh, tied to ideas about nation and community, and also through legal ritual and poetics, you know, how they phrased certain things, the words that they used, um, which aspects of legal ritual from Nigeria or indeed from British colonialism they chose to preserve and which ones they chose to discard. I think all of these things are, are parts of... Um, uh, of, of Biafra's legal history. Um, to move on to the second part of your question about the international aspect of this. So I think that there is sometimes 
a tendency in international history um, to conflate or confuse the history of humanitarianism in Africa with the history of the people whom uh, humanitarians serve, to kind mm-hmm. of confuse events that take place in Africa with the history of Africa. And uh, I think that there's a real danger of this with somewhere with, with, with uh, a history like Biafra's, where humanitarian organizations were very, very involved in um, the politics of the of the country, um, in the provision of aid, uh, but always were kind of at a at a remove from what was actually going on in uh, the towns and villages along the front. So. My focus in this book is on what took place in those towns and villages, um, not really the decisions that were made in Paris or London or Washington um, with regard to humanitarian relief and aid. And yet, I think it's impossible to avoid those organizations. And I actually use some of the, the, the sources and materials that they produced. Um, but I want to emphasize that Biafra was not just a blur of tragedy, which um, is what it looks like when you're looking at it through that humanitarian lens. Uh, I think the humanitarian crisis is an important starting point. But for me, that crisis is important for the, the problems that it made locally. And this is not a smaller question. Uh, Nigeria is a vast and very important place. And uh, like I said, the the scale of the war and the conflict means that looking at it in a national frame, I think, does not diminish the stakes of what you're talking about. If anything, it actually raises them. Relatively few historians have analyzed the inner workings of the Biafran state itself. And I think this is because there's a kind of consensus that Biafra was never quite a real place. Um, even those who were committed to the Biafran cause, heart and soul, often felt like their government was a facade or a mimicry of what a real state ought to look like. And there is some truth to this idea. You know, Biafra often comes across as fleeting, even in its own documents. But the cases, the legal cases that I use in this book, resulted in real decisions that uh, dissolved marriages and changed the boundaries of property and sent people to the gallows. So if the legal, if the Biafran legal system was a facade or was a fake in some respect, it was actually a very convincing one. And I find that these kinds of questions are not really accessible via the international approach and via the kinds of records that are available in Europe or North America. But even though I find some, some defect in international history as it observes Africa, I don't want to say that Nigeria's history is only about Nigeria and that everyone else should back off or something like that, you know, quite the opposite. I do think that in African studies, we have a, we have a longstanding tendency to, um, to want to treat African societies on their own terms, to uh, reject models of change that are made elsewhere, uh, to find ways of measuring time or periodizing uh, history that better suit African societies. These are all very important admonitions, and they should still be heeded. But I do think that arguing for Africa's distinctiveness um, risks parochializing African history uh, and prevents us from seeing that ecumenical arguments might emerge from the African past, not just be applied to it. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do in this book. 
I argued that the Nigerian civil war was important because it reveals something about war in general, um, probably more than it reveals about Africa in the 1960s. So, you know, I'm constantly toggling between these two different dispositions towards international history, wanting to treat the particularities of the office history on its own terms, on their own terms, but also not wanting to make this just a Biafran story that is only about West Africa in the 1960s. So, yeah, uh, I think you achieved that val- that balance really well in the book, or it comes, comes out really well, at least, between... Um showing these aspects that were very local and very particular to what happened in Biafra, but also it's not, it's not a story that is, that could have only happened there. That is, is somehow exclusive to some kind of um, African environment. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the type of stories that you excavate from the archives later, but I want to go back now to the, uh, I guess the, the other very important element um, of the analysis you carry out in the book, which is to take crime Um, as your main category category of analysis. And in in the introduction, um, you explain how choosing to do so, to focus on crime, uh, a lot of historians kind of like tend to stay away from that because it it always uh, carries a risk in a way um, of of, of reifying or justifying what states do to repress crime. Um, and obviously we're, we're, you know, we're having this discussion right now. We're recording this podcast. It is October of 2020. Uh, we're at a moment when, uh, the youth of Nigeria has been staging massive protests against state security forces. And the state has met these protests specifically with more violence and more killings, um, using the language of crime repression. Um, so I guess in a way I wanted to connect all of this and also make sure that we, 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 we do justice to your argument and convey it correctly. Um, as a historian, how do you understand and study crime and how do you employ it in the book, in your analysis to connect life in Biafra to developments in post-war Nigeria? That's such a great question. And like probably every historian of Nigeria in the world right now, I am very closely watching Uh, what is going on in Lagos and watching it with a mixture of admiration for the protesters who are challenging uh, the Nigerian law enforcement apparatus and also with horror at how the Nigerian state has responded to those protests, which has been violent. Um, The protests currently turn on this this law enforcement agency called the the Special Anti-Robbery Squad or SARS And SARS uh, was part of a repressive package of law enforcement tactics that emerged during Nigeria's long period of military rule, which lasted from 1966 to 1999 with two fairly brief interruptions. And during this period, the, the soldiers who were in charge of Nigeria basically turned the tools that soldiers have at their disposal to control other soldiers into tools to police civilians. And so these included things like a special tribunal to deal with the problem of armed robbery, which became a kind of national crisis in years after the war, as the book describes. Um, This tribunal very liberally imposed capital punishment, often in quite uh, graphic uh, ways. Uh, These uh, repressive measures also included a whole range of different special forces and squads uh, like SARS with broad mandates to deter crime at any cost. And um, 
I think that all of this shows very clearly that crime is a is a powerful political tool. Uh, governments, including Nigeria's, use it to warrant discrimination and to induce the kind of fear in ordinary people that basically gives those governments a blank check for doing whatever they want to do in the name of combating it. Um, and I think it's that fact that makes a lot of historians reluctant to even talk about crime, as you said, uh, because there's a fear that doing so will give credence to that idea. In this book and in my work more broadly, I want to pull back the curtain and expose how politicians use crime to this effect. But I want to do that without just saying that crime is a figment of the imagination. Crime also has a social history. You know, it's something that people do and experience. And the fact that it can be politically instrumentalized in the ways that it is, including with regard to organizations like SARS, doesn't change the fact that it's also an important feature of daily life and shapes people how it shapes how people think and act. So to me, the danger of talking about crime emerges when crime is used as something that explains something rather than something to be explained as a historically situated phenomenon. Um, so in this book, the, the objective has been to describe crime as a social experience, as something that people lived with and made a peace with, um, while also showing how the Nigerian government mobilized fears to um, basically uh, uh, give itself a, a, a warrant for repression. Let's let's go back to the to the sources for a moment. Um, I think there's a lot there, um, and you touched on it earlier. You talk about some of the the records that you found, things scribbled in the back of a of a love letter. Um, you had this quote in the book that I thought was really great. Um, you say some documents give me feelings rather than facts. A stiff piece of blood-stained cloth that tumbled out of an evidence folder, a restricted file uh, passed on to me in a bathroom stall or Biafran veterans' army papers that he kept hidden at the bottom of a box of pornography. Um, yeah, and throughout, throughout the book, you, you bring all these examples, and I, I really like how you centered the kind of sources that you use and the methods that come along with using these sources. So can you give us a little bit more of a sense of uh, the sources, the archives, the interlocutors, um, in general, the, the research sites, and just your, your research process in general? for the book? Yeah. So I would say there were three main bodies of sources that went into this book. Uh, the first and most important uh, were legal sources from the Afrin and post-war Nigerian courts. Uh, most of these are held uh, by the courts where they originated. Um, they are uh, not generally things that are used by historians. Um, and they're held in conditions that are kind of uh, rough, uh, which I'll describe in a minute. Um, the second uh, body of sources was uh, oral history. So I conducted a lot of interviews uh, with lawyers and magistrates and legal administrators who had worked in Biafra or in post-war Nigeria. Uh, I interviewed a few people who had um, been in court as, as litigants or criminal defendants during this period, but it proved pretty difficult to track those people into the present, whereas it was much easier to find lawyers. Uh, so you know, the oral historical component is mostly a kind of legal ethnography uh, of Nigeria in the 1960s and 70s. 
Um, the third uh, body of sources uh, consists of records from abroad. And, you know, I use these with a lot of caution, um, as I uh, alluded to before. Um, but they included uh, intelligence files and other records from the UK, France, uh, South Africa, and the Republic of Ireland. Um, those, those latter two uh, are, are sort of archives that are less commonly used for um, sussing out the history of post-colonial Nigeria, but for various reasons, they were actually germane to this project. So the truth of the matter is that you know, most of the research that went into this book was solitary labor in dark, hot storerooms where you're faced with a mountain of paper and detritus, and you just have to get through it before someone decides that you've kind of worn out your welcome. It was not you mean the historian's work is not so glamorous? <laughs> <laughs> it was not very glamorous or romantic. Um, and it was definitely not the kind of genteel scene of, uh, you know, wood paneled libraries that I naively once thought was where history was written. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but that said, I think that there's a lot to be learned from the conditions in which uh, records are kept, uh, the negotiations that go into accessing them, uh, the, the question of what is preserved at all and what is discarded. You can, you can learn a lot from that process itself. Um, that again is not necessarily what the do- is not necessarily captured by what the document says. There were also a lot of you know experiences um, in the field, so to speak, that shaped how I told this story. Um, there was one lawyer I interviewed who gave me a false name the first time that I met him, and a couple meetings later, after we had gotten to know each other a little bit, he gave me his real name and said, "Well, you know." The war taught me that you really never know who you can trust, which is true. And that got me thinking about the documents about fraud and impersonation that I was reading and why someone might give a false name. Um, there was a veteran that I spoke to uh, who, as you mentioned in the quote, was you know very keen to show me this collection of dirty magazines that he had, which I should note probably would not have happened if I were a woman. And when he pulled them out of the box, uh, where he kept them under his bed, his uh, military call-up papers were at the bottom. And, you know, he was both excited and kind of ashamed to show me both of these things. And I think that there's a larger lesson about how Biafra is remembered in that. Um, To a lot of people who lived through the war, Biafra is both an object of pride and one of kind of shame or anxiety. It's something that you, you might hide, but you go back to all the time. You turn it over in your memory and you think about it. Um, and yeah, the, the files themselves sometimes had traces of um, traces that were, that were not captured by their texts. Uh, sometimes you're turning through a file and you come across this very grisly crime scene photograph that has been left in it inadvertently. Um, this was always very disconcerting to find, but and it's a reminder that, that criminal case files are not just stories, they're not just texts, but they're actually artifacts of real tragedies that should be treated with a lot of care and a lot of respect. So I think it's it's in all of that that my, that my methodological intervention of the book is located. A lot of these things are not these are kind of not matters that most historians who work on the 1960s, I think, think about. Um, they are generally, um, you know, if you work on the pre-modern era, you might think a lot about um, marginalia or the book arts or uh, paleography, that kind of thing. 
But those of us who work in the age of typewriters <laughs> and mimeographs generally, I think, don't pay very much attention to uh, the actual material of the archive. Uh, but this project convinced me that maybe we should. Right. Um, for sure. Yeah, definitely something to take uh, uh, an area where we can emulate our colleagues who work in these earlier periods. Because, yeah, the, the materiality carries so much, right? Absolutely. Um, totally. Yeah, I was I was telling you before we before we recorded uh, uh, that something I was definitely guilty of uh, before I started reading the book was um, to fear that it might be a kind of uh, dry legal and military history, as you said, because it talks about law and it talks about war. Um, and so to make sure that uh, you know listeners and future readers don't make the same. Uh, mistake as I did, um, I was hoping you could give us kind of a sense of like the, the really extraordinary like social history that you're able to um, get out of these records uh, and of these discussions uh, and these encounters that you had. Um, yeah, can you give us just a bit, glimpse of some of the most memorable stories uh, you encountered and featured in the book or did not feature in the book? Absolutely. So at its heart, this book is a collection of stories. And those stories need to be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, legal records have a kind of allure in that they appear on the surface to be, you know, sworn and true and detailed. And actually, there are lots of reasons to doubt them. Um, but nonetheless, I do think there's a powerful uh, possibility for social history in criminal legal records. To give one example, uh, I want to talk about a 1969 case called The State v. Catherine Wabunike. Um, this is a dramatic case from the final months of Biafra's existence about a complicated and high-stakes confidence scheme that went bad. And it was heard before the Special Tribunal of Biafra, which was um, a kind of military tribunal set up for civilians as part of the broader a project of martial law that also existed in Biafra in this late period of the war. And I think the case is important because it illustrates how law-abiding people could be driven to fraud by the extreme circumstances of the war. So a woman named Karina Anasso was the, the main witness for the prosecution. And she was a naturalized Biafran citizen of Finnish origin who was married to a Biafran physician who chose to stay in Biafra when the war started. So her husband ran afoul of the authorities somehow and was serving a prison sentence for subversion of the Biafran state during the events of the case. And in February of 1969, uh, when things were really bad in Biafra, the war was not going very well, um, starvation had set in. Uh, in this month, uh, a Biafran woman named Catherine Wabunike came to Anasso and told her, truthfully, that her husband was also a political prisoner and was being held in the same prison in the town of Ibaruku as Anaso's husband. So the two women commiserated together, and Wabunike insinuated herself into Anaso's household over the space of a few weeks. And after a while, Wabunike came to Anaso and said, if you give me 200 pounds, I'll be able to travel to, to Umwahia and bribe the prison wardens to get both of our husbands out of prison. Anaso was grateful. She agreed immediately. Uh, she scrounged together the money from her savings and caged it from her friends. 
Wabunike then absconded with the money and sold the car that Anaso had loaned her to travel to the prison and kind of disappeared into the maw of the war zone. She then used the money to try to get only her own husband, who was actually a British expatriate, out of jail. Wow. So the fact that these two husbands, one Biafran, one British, had shared a cell, had given Wabunike the idea that the foreign wife of her husband's cellmate might have the money that she needed to, to secure her own husband's release. So when it became clear that Wabunike wasn't coming back and hadn't done anything to help her own husband, Anaso reported the whole matter to the police. Wabunike was tracked down, somewhat miraculously, given uh, the fact that the war was right on the doorstep of where this was all happening. And she was arrested and charged before the Special Tribunal of Biafra for this increasingly capacious crime called subversion against the Biafran state. So after a long and very charged trial, the tribunal found that Wabunike's actions were a premeditated attempt to gain Anaso's confidence. And setting aside the fact that both of these women had been trying to bribe prison officials, uh, she was found mm. guilty on the grounds that she had defrauded Anaso. And she was found guilty under Section 419 of the Biafran Criminal Code. So this case shows how ordinary people like Wabunike, who were far from being confidence artists, devised ways to preserve themselves, you know, sometimes at the expense of others, in response to the crises that the war had created. I think this case has striking similarities to the kinds of confidence rackets that became well-known in post-war Nigeria. And the tribunal was impressed by how much planning and thought you know, went into it on Wabunike's part. Um, her appeal to Anaso's trust, uh, the fact that her target was a foreigner, um, and the, the heightened emotional tone of Wabunike's pitch, all of these show striking similarities to the kinds of sophisticated confidence schemes that Nigeria would become known for after the war. But unlike in those later 419 cases, in 1969, in Biafra, the emotional urgency of Wabunike's scam was real rather than manufactured. So the diminishing ability of the Biafran legal system to go after these cases ensured that a lot of these schemes succeeded. And judges often opined that only a fraction of the people engaged in fraud in Biafra would ever actually face charges, even though Wabunike did, which is why I can tell you about her today. So there are a lot of other stories like this that I could share, but as I said, at its heart, the, the book is a collection of these kinds of anecdotes. Yes, and people will need to read the book to read access more of these stories, and I, I really encourage everyone to do it because it's yeah, it's kind of extraordinary um, what you're able to 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 get out of these sources. Um, I I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more, and I guess you you started with this specific case. Um, but other instances where women in particular um, show up in the records um, and how did gender play out uh, in the unfolding of the war, but also in the in the aftermath? Uh, I'm thinking about some examples that you brought up, um, uh, you know, these civil defense organizations in Biafra that were headed by women, um, but also like you talk quite a bit about household conflict. Um, in the aftermath of the war um, and how it relates to the events that immediately happened. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, where, where do women and where does gender show up um, in, 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 in the research? Yeah. So war is often the time when ideas about gender and sex change. 
Um, and in most cases, this is because a generation of men has been obliterated, to put it very crudely, and women step into the roles that are left empty. The study of gender in warfare is not, however, only about this kind of thing. It's not only about how the division of labor changes when men are away at the front, even though that is an important dynamic of it. And in this war, in Biafra, women also served as combatants, um, primarily in Biafran militias and civil defense organizations, but in a handful of cases also in the regular Biafran armed forces. Many of the women who played these roles uh, thought of their combat roles as something that followed on from women's participation in earlier anti-colonial rebellions, um, which had been led, some of which had been led by women, uh, most notably the 1929 Ogo Umunwani, or the Abba Women's War. So when we think of a soldier here, we should not necessarily be thinking of a man. Um, to that end, the male soldier, I want to emphasize, is a gendered figure too. And the story right. of gender in warfare is not just the story of what women are doing, although that is very important. It's also a story of how soldiering affects ideas of masculinity and how that, that figure is a gendered figure. Um, I'm actually not going to talk about that too much because it's a central part of my next book, which I'm working on now, which looks more closely at this impetuous group of young men in uniform who ruled Nigeria after the end of the war in that long period of military rule that I alluded to earlier. Um, with regard to crime, too, there are gender dynamics that are important and were, kind, were seen as unusual um, in this context. Judges in post-war Nigeria were often shocked to find that young women sometimes participated in armed robberies, uh, which totally went against um, what they thought young women were capable of doing and went against the kinds of categories that they used to organize who engaged in violent crime. Um, there's also a, a, a kind of larger importance to, to the study of gender for this project, which is not necessarily about um, what men and women are doing in the context of the war, but is a, is a theoretical perspective that I found very useful and um, turned to a lot. And that is the, the description of armed violence and how to describe armed violence. Uh, because the, the description of violence as a lived experience is something that military history actually really lacks a language for, despite its centrality in warfare. Um, but literature from gender studies and feminist scholarship more broadly um, has uh, does a lot to really uh, work out the affective dimensions of violence, how it changes people's um, lives, modes of thinking, modes of relating to one another. And so I think that's actually probably the most important way in which gender figures in this work. It's not so much about what women are doing, which is important. Um, it's about what feminist scholarship allows us to see. Right. And we'll get back to because I, I absolutely want to hear more about your your next project and how you analyze also this this these vision, visions of masculine masculinity um, and, and how they play out later in in Nigerian life. But we'll get back to this um, first. I want to ask you a little bit more about. You give us a sense of the research process and. Can you give us a sense now of your writing process for this project? Um, I believe this was your dissertation project that then turned into this book. Um, 
So can you give us just a kind of behind the scene look of um, how the project transformed, how you went about writing it? Uh, I know that a lot of grad students or a lot of like researchers and writers are listening to the podcast, only always looking for, you know, writing a hacks or seeing other people are doing <laughs> it. So tell us more about, I guess, yeah, the, the life of this project as you wrote it and, and how it changed and, and how your writing impacted that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how sage my advice will be, given that I'm uh, still figuring out how to be a historian myself. It will be great. It will be great. We're <laughs> eager to listen to it. Okay. I, I can speak a little bit about you know how the book came to be. Uh, like you said, it was uh, it emerged from my doctoral dissertation, uh, which I did at Columbia University. Uh, Gregory Mann was my advisor there. I also worked closely with Mamadou Duf, Abosede George, Brian Larkin, and Frederick Cooper. All of them were phenomenal. I could not have asked for a better committee. Um, I also think a lot about comparative perspectives on this history and the work of people like Judith Serkis, uh, who is a historian of France and North Africa, uh, and Mitra Sharafi, who is a South Asianist, gave me an appreciation of the fact that there are certain currents in this history that can be found elsewhere. Um, I hesitate to call my work comparative because it's not, but there are definitely places where what was going on in Biafra and Nigeria rhymes with histories in other regions of the world. So I guess my first you know, piece of advice would be to remain alert to places that you might not think seem connected to your field of study, but actually really are. Um, I guess my other piece of advice would be to be open to other disciplines and to not get too hung up on the norms and rules of different modes of inquiry or theories of knowledge. Um, I teach in a black studies department at Duke. And this is a really excellent place to pursue big questions and to think broadly. And it's also a place where there aren't a lot of strictures in terms of methodology. Black studies always has one eye on the task of describing or analyzing black life wherever it's found, and one eye on a kind of larger project of world making that emerges from that study. African studies and history, uh, which is the discipline that I was trained in, don't generally have that same impulse to try to remake the world. Um, but I don't denigrate them for that. I don't think that's a defect. And the kind of boring empiricism that historians like myself cherish is actually a very important tool for those whose ambitions are larger. And ideally, these fields should all work in tandem. Um, they only sometimes do, but I don't think it's an either-or kind of thing when it comes to which discipline is best or which discipline you should situate yourself in. A discipline is kind of an empty vessel at the end of the day, and it shouldn't dictate you know, what you put into it. I think I have found a lot of intellectual freedom working in Black Studies. I think everybody should bring a bit of that openness into their work. Um, some of the parts of this book that I am most happy with um, were things that were inspired by literary fiction and the visual arts. And even though the finished project uh, product rather is a, a pretty straight work of historical scholarship, um, the path of getting to that took me to a lot of weird and unexpected places. So uh, Roberto Bolaño's novel 2666 was my model for narrating stories about individual crimes, for example. Um, and the performance artist Okuyokwokwasili was in the back of my head when I was writing about the women who participated in armed robberies and militias who I mentioned before. These are the kinds of things that maybe don't, um, that you, you're not going to encounter first when you're doing historical scholarship, 
but you should be open to allowing them to shape how you tell a story. I also had the really good fortune of working a lot with an anthropologist, the anthropologist Vivian Liu, who was present not only during the writing of this book, but also during a lot of the research. And I learned a lot by observing how she worked up close and how an anthropologist thinks. And a lot of the oral historical work that went into this book was influenced by her ethnographic method. You know, I am, at the end of the day, fairly conservative methodologically, and it's easy for me to lapse into antiquarianism or to start fetishizing papers and ignoring people if I'm not careful. But Vivian's work on Eastern Nigeria today always pulled me back into the realm of the living <laughs> and the present. So I think that some kind of attention to another discipline while you're writing a historical work is a really good thing. And, and I think the book is stronger for it. Oh, thank you for this and for bringing in all these influences, um, your peers, uh, people who you work with. It, yeah, that was really rich. I'm, I'm glad I asked you this question, despite mm. the caveat that you, you inserted <laughs> at the beginning of the answer. Um, and yeah, I, I'm really loving also these, these reflections that you've offered. Uh, Eleni Zeleke also offered some uh, in the previous mm. podcast about you know, these interactions between Black studies uh, on the one hand and African studies and African history on the other hand, those are definitely conversations that we should be having and we're, I'm glad we're having them more and more. Um, so that was really food for thought. Um, all right, we're, we're reaching the end of the podcast I, and there, there was really a lot there. I guess my last question, um, which you began talking about a little bit, but I was hoping you would tell us more, is uh, what's next? What, mm -hmm. uh, what other project are you working on? What other ideas um, are you pursuing at the moment? So I have a few projects that I'm currently working on. Um, the first of which is a continuation of this book, uh, in a sense, which picks up the story of post-colonial Nigeria from the mid-1970s and tells the story of military rule, uh, which, as I mentioned, lasted with a couple of brief interruptions until 1999. So it looks at the way that military administrations uh, worked and thought by looking at uh, a set of individuals. Uh, so it, uh, each chapter is about a different person. Uh, the first is about uh, a prominent Nigerian judge who uh, also worked elsewhere on the African continent and was the first African chief justice of Uganda. Uh, one is about the musician Fela Kuti, uh, who I'm sure your listeners are familiar with. Uh, and in particular, it's about his um, brushes with the law. Um, another chapter is about an oracle, um, which is an implement of uh, traditional justice making that had a kind of strange and uh, revealing experience during the history of military rule. And the fourth is about uh, a young woman Uh, who was imprisoned in the United Kingdom on drug charges uh, in the 1990s for smuggling drugs uh, from Nigeria. So it's a kind of uh, a telling of military rule that focuses on these four individuals, or rather three individuals and one object. Um, and it is provisionally entitled Soldier's Paradise. The second project that I'm working on um, is a larger, more comparative history of military desertion. It is a, a global history, but it is a history that is told from the African shore, so to speak. 
Uh, global history that is about Africa or that treats Africa as its center is usually about one of two things, um, slavery or colonialism. This is extremely important work, but I'm interested in the question of what global history told from Africa looks like when something else is made the object of study, something thematic. And for me, that object of study is military desertion. So desertion is an important but sort of poorly understood force in the history of warfare broadly. And in my current research, I encounter desertion constantly. It is a feature of court martial records. It's a fixture of oral testimony. And it's a preoccupation of virtually everyone who wrote a memoir of the Nigerian Civil War. And looking outward from Biafra at other conflicts, it has become clear to me that desertion is actually an important feature of warfare in a lot of cases. Uh, militaries very often struggle to keep soldiers from leaving the battlefield. And I'm interested both in how they try to do that and what happens when they fail. So this project argues that desertion is, is often a socially productive force. It's not just an act of cowardice or abnegation, as it's usually understood. And when soldiers run away from the battlefield, they are going to something as well as away from something. And when they stop running, they often create new communities, new lineages. Uh, they generate new ideas about honor and obligation. And African history, I think, shows this really clearly. Um, the map of the continent is littered with places that were made by deserters in the 19th and 20th century. And so this project will marshal oral tradition and historical ethnography and the records of armies and tribunals to understand how desertion can be a creative political force. And this project, because it's not exclusively about Africa, it's taking me into precincts of history that are, that are new to me. So the chapter that I'm working on right now, for example, is about the San Patricios, um, these Irish soldiers in the U.S. Army who deserted and massed the Mexican side during the Mexican-American War. Um, it's also taking me into the history of American imperialism in the Philippines um, and the strange small societies that were created by mutineers in the South Pacific and the South Atlantic. So it's intimidating to be doing research about other places that are beyond my training in African studies, but it's also exciting. And I think that African history is a good jumping off place for a lot of other areas of historical inquiry. I have to say my mind might be just a little bit blown right now. I, you're able to make military history and soldier stories like so like so rich and so exciting. Um, so, okay, Soldier's Paradise and the Good Soldier, Global History of Desertion. I am going to book you for the next podcast <laughs> as soon as you're done with these projects. Uh, it sounds really, really, really fascinating. Um, for our listeners, again, this was um, Samuel Fury Charles Daly of Duke University, who was talking about his brand new books, uh, his, his brand new book, sorry, A History of the Republic of Biafra. Law, Crime, and the Nigerian Civil War, which came up with Cambridge University Press in 2020. And as you just heard, there are other really exciting projects to look forward to. Um, so in the meantime, we'll be, we'll be reading that, that first book. And thank you again, Sam, for coming to discuss it with us on the podcast. I really loved our conversation. Thank you, Medina. It's been a total pleasure. Okay.